All right, and hello once again to a Light Into My Path podcast. I am your host, uh, Howard Sides. Uh, seems like forever since we've talked, but it's only been a few minutes. So I'm jumping right into my next episode here. I kind of wanted to get into this one. Uh, today, we're, uh, well, to catch you up, if you don't know what we're about, we're um, going through the history of the authorized text uh, version of the Bible, the King James Version, original, because there's been a revision of it, which is not a true version. We'll get into that much later, but uh, right here, we're going through the history, all, all the events, all the people, uh, things that uh, the other secular, I don't even want to use the word secular, but the other man-made versions of the Bible, okay? How they come about, the role they played, and uh, what we have today as what I consider to be the uh, one true English version of God's Word. Uh, if you find an error, it's a misprint. It's not a mistranslation. God played a significant role in giving man what man needed. And that's what this authorized version of the Bible is. I think it is God's one uh, English Bible that we need. I've said it many times before, and I think it makes just perfectly common sense if there's one God, if there is one Son, if there is one Spirit, if there is one way of salvation, if there is one truth, if there is one life, if there is one bread, if there is one of these, one of that, and one of that, then why would there be 964 versions of the Bible? Okay, well, actually, there's more than that, but I believe the authorized text is the one true English language Bible for man today. That's that's my position. You have another one? Uh, you're welcome to it. But okay, all right. Today, First uh, Timothy chapter four and verse number twelve will be our text. First Timothy chapter four, verse number twelve. While you turn to there, we'll be talking about, uh, by his full title, James the Sixth, King of Scots, and James the First, King of Great Britain. A man with two names, <laughs> but James is James. <laughs> All right, First Timothy chapter 4, verse number 12. Let no man despise thy youth. And, and again, this is Paul uh, writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy was a young man, uh, Paul being of you know, a seasoned veteran by now. Uh, and he's given Timothy some advice here. Uh, verse number 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, the doctrine, singular. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both Save thyself and them that hear thee. Uh, that verse 16 there is commonly used or listed, I guess you'd say, as uh, the pastor's creed. Uh, and it talks basically about uh, a personal warning 
take heed uh, in your walk, take heed unto thyself, and uh, also his work, the doctrine, um, privately. In doing this, thou shalt save thyself, and publicly, them that hear thee. So make sure that what you tell people is the truth. And, you know, I, I on a personal note, uh, when I first started preaching, I really was scared of saying something wrong. I, I only wanted to tell the truth. I, I really knew within my heart, um, I love to teach. I love to explain things, to uh to give the color, to, to look at things through the children's eyes. And, and in becoming a teacher and a preacher, I didn't want to reach that point because I know it's tempting to all, uh, that you start looking for what we call $10 words to explain things, words people can't spell, they can't even understand. I wanted to keep it just as basically simple as I possibly could. I wanted to explain things in a level that everybody could know what I was talking about. When I preach... Uh, in front of a church, we have uh, every age group covered from newborns up to people in their 80s. And, and I want to make it where everybody can. And I know, yes, real young children, they don't know. But but you, you know what I'm saying. I wanted to make it as clear and as precise and, and easily understandable as I can. God's word's not meant to be hard. But he, did, he does tell him, hey, meditate upon these things. You've still got to think about it. You've still got to read it. Uh, verse 13, he tells him, hey, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Know what you're reading and, and, and pray about it and study that thing out. Now, I know this, this lesson that I'm doing on the history of the King James Bible, and I'm saying, hey, this is the only one true English version of the Bible out there, and there's like hundreds of, hundreds of versions out there, and people say, hey, I think my version is just as good. I'm not going to sit here and debate that. This is, this is my personal thought, but it's up to you. It's up to you. And, and I challenge you that, um, you know, you study it for yourself. You research it out because basically your eternity is based on it, on what you believe. You may think it's not that big of a deal. Well, your eternity is based on it. So I challenge you. Don't take my word for it. You study it for yourself. I'm just giving you some pointers on things that I've found and other people have found. James Knox, uh Thank God I, I got a lot of the, these notes that I do have from him. Uh, but I didn't take his word for it. I went and studied some of this stuff out, added to what I found, uh, and, and instilled some things in the timeline that maybe he didn't have or, or some other people had. Uh, there, there are so many sources out there on why the, the authorized text is the one true uh, Bible that we have from God. Okay? So, you know, take it upon yourself. I challenge you. All right, now. Back to my notes. Uh, James the Sixth, King of Scots, and James the First, King of Great Britain. Why in the world has he got two titles? Well, we're getting to that. All right, first of all, his biography. Let's find out about this little man. Uh, first of all, he was born on June the 19th in 1566 at Edinburgh Castle. That is in Scotland, okay? He is the only son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and her second husband, Henry Stuart, who is also known as Lord Darnley. Uh, and to recap a little bit, who are these people? Mary, Queen of Scots, is a diehard Catholic. And you're thinking, <laughs> okay, this guy come from her? Well, yeah, he did. Mary, Queen of Scots, diehard Catholic. Um, second husband, Henry Stuart. Now, on February the 10th of 1567, this this is, James is, what, a few months old. He's not even a year old. 
All right. Henry Stewart, his father, is killed by an explosion. Now, although his death was suspected as murder, it could not be proven. Because you remember when he died in the castle, Mary had taken the baby and had gone on a supposed trip somewhere, but they think it was set up by Mary. Just couldn't be proven. All right. On May 15th, Mary marries the man who is the number one suspect in Henry's death. Oh, okay. In June of the same year, Protestant rebels, angry at the marriage, arrest Mary and imprison her in Loch Levin Castle. Loch Levin Castle. L-E-V-E-N. Loch Levin Castle. Mary never saw her son again. All right, and you think, man, this is tragic. That's horrible. Very true. It is. I, I can't imagine. I have four children of my own. Well, well, my wife was involved too, but still. I have four children of my own. Uh, to be separated from them, that, that would be tragic. But God has a reason. God has a purpose, and God has a role for everything that happens. And you think, wow, this little young man, here he is, doesn't even have his mother. He's not even a year old. But you see what's happening here. The Catholic influence is not there. Okay? So she never saw her son again. So what happens? On July 24th, Mary was forced to abdicate her throne to 13-month-old James and name her half-brother James Stewart as regent. Now, what is a regent? Regent basically means, okay, he is the de facto or the acting king until James becomes of age, all right? She had no choice in this, all right? And you think, well, who is this James Stewart? Well, I'll tell you who he was. He was Mary's half-brother, and by fact, he was a devout Protestant. There you go. So, Mary was pulled out of the picture. James Stewart was put in. Uh, to teach James how to be a little Protestant, all right? July 29th, 1567. James is crowned James VI, King of Scots, at the Church of Holy Rood. The sermon at the coronation service, now get this, <laughs> the sermon at the coronation service was preached by Mary's nemesis, John Knox. <laughs> Don't you know that was done on purpose? Oh, yes, Absolutely. All right, so James Stewart raises James as a member of the Protestant Church of Scotland. And I'm sure he got plenty of preaching under old John Knox. Oh, yes, he did. Now, James Sr. Tudor, George Buchanan, subject, subjected James to regular beatings, but also instilled in him a lifelong passion for literature and learning. And you think, how horrible. I know that's what you're thinking, some of you. Uh, listen, it doesn't say why beating. I'm of the opinion that James was probably like me. I remember what it was like to be a little boy. I was into everything. I, You could stand there with that switch cocked back ready to hit me, and I'd still be moving my way to it. And I'm paying for that because one of my sons was just like that. <laughs> it always comes back around to you, I'm telling you. Um, stubborn, okay? It, it doesn't say anything about abusiveness, I mean, the Bible even says, he that spareth the rod hateth the child. Okay? Those of you who don't believe in whipping, read your Bible. He that hateth, or he that spareth the rod hateth the child. That's in the Bible. I didn't say that. Get mad at God. I mean, all right? So, but there's a bond made here because George Buchanan instilled in this young man a lifelong passion for literature and learning. He never thought he knew it all, 
Okay, James became proficient in several languages and was an avid student of the Bible. He personally translated the Psalms into modern English. Now, that's old English, modern English, okay? That, that's the, the era they're living in was modern English language. And he translated the entire book of Psalms himself <laughs> into modern English. How many books of the Bible have you translated lately? <laughs> All right, he paraphrased the entire book of Revelation. He, he put notes on the entire book of Revelation. Um, in 1581, James begins his official rule as an adult at age 15. All right, so 15 years old, he took over the, the throne. On March the 24th, 1603, Queen Elizabeth I dies. She's in charge in England, remember? And James, as the rightful heir, uh, I'm not even going to go back through that Tudor family thing. That whole tree was just all, okay, so-and-so married him, but, but he was in line to be the king. So when Queen Elizabeth dies, James, as the rightful heir, is proclaimed James I, King of England and Ireland. So basically, this united the realms of England and Scotland for the very first time ever. And so he becomes the King of Scotland, England, and Great Britain, <laughs> and Ireland, all together. Okay? Wow. Busy man. Alright. So, you think, wow, this must be great. Uh, hold on. Hit the brakes. Because he also inherited the power struggle between the Episcopalians, which are the Anglicans or the Church of England, and the Puritans. Yeah, even they're fighting. You remember there's the Roman Catholic uh, section, there's the Anglican or Episcopalian or Church of England section, and then you got the Puritans. These three power, uh, it's a power struggle. It's always a constant bickering. It's like three kids at the table. Uh, if you've got three kids now, get along. God bless you, because most times you got two there, there's going to be animosity somewhere, <laughs> eventually. All right, so you got three lines. So James personally favored the Episcopalians. Of course, that's from his upbringing, okay? I, I get that. You should get that too, okay? And, and the the, uh, the Episcopalians supported a monarchy with divine rights. Basically, what they were saying with that was that if the king decried it a rule, it was as though God said it himself. All right, now each party at this time, have their own Bible. The Episcopalians have the Bishop's Bible. The Puritans have the Geneva Bible. The Catholics have the Douay-Rheims Bible. Now, James desired a unique Bible for his own political party. In other words, he was looking to make you know, a statement of his own. Uh, the Egyptian kings built pyramids. The English kings had Bible translations. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, so now... Uh, we know a little bit about James. Now, let's get into the 17th century. Here we go, in the 1600s, 17th century. And uh, I should point out that, you know, th there's so many things people say, well, it was just circumstance. It just happened at that time. It, it was just this. It was just that. The number 17 in numerology, if you, if you study that sort of thing, it's the number 10 and the number 7 put together, 10 plus 7. It in seven, the number 17 in numerology stands for the perfection of spiritual order. And if there is ever a definition of what we hold in our hands as the authorized text of the Bible, this is perfection of spiritual order. There is no error in it. There is no erroneous statement. I, what God said, it makes sense and it fits. And here's the miracle of all this. Okay, you think, well, you know, when God first wrote it, it was in 
uh, you know, Arabic, it was in Hebrew, it was in Greek. Listen, when it translated into English, even in the, the numer numero yeah, numerology fits, how can you do that in the two languages like that, three languages like that? It, it's amazing. Um, if you have the chance to look at it, because, because I've even heard preachers make this error statement. Uh, they'll get all excited when their preachers say, you know, bless God, I've got the original 1611 version of the Bible in my hand. Uh, not so fast. <laughs> the original 1611 text was written in what King James knew, which was that modern English. Now, I have um, a facsimile copy of the 1611 Bible. And uh, it's a little hard to read. Of course, you know, old is old. Old is like O-L-D-E. You know, some of the words are like that. And plus the writing style, the penmanship was of a much far higher quality than what we have today. And as we use Times uh, New Roman and, and Calibri and some of these other uh, styles of letters today because we just don't have the intellect to sit down and take our time to read things. Uh, it's got to be fast. It's got to be quick. It's got to be now. And that's why our Bibles look like they do. It's simple. And even then, people don't take the time to read them. But if you get a hold of one of, one of those um, modern English Bible, the, like the original 1611, I'm telling you, it, 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 it's a study. It'll make you stop and slow down to read it. All right. So jumping in this, uh, 1603, uh, we're introduced to what is called the millenary petition. Millenary petition. M-I-L-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Why is it called a millenary petition? Because it included a thousand Puritan preachers. Millennial. Okay. So as about a thousand Puritan preachers signed a petition, a petition. In March, this petition was presented to James during his trip to London for his coronation. <clears throat> now, the issues stated in the petition were uh, asking James to allow certain changes in church services and church government, to eliminate the signing of the cross from all services. And did you get that? Okay, what, what, if, if you think of Roman Catholicism, one of the first things you think of is, is that thing where they cross themselves. Do you get that hint that they were asking that to be removed from the churches of England? They were still crossing themselves. They were still doing that. Okay. Another thing they were asking for was to eliminate the use of elaborate priestly garments. Elaborate priestly garments. Where did they get that from? The Roman Catholic Church. They were doing it too. Now here's a, a strange one. They wanted to eliminate the use of wedding rings. You know why? Because the Puritans were all about nothing flashy. And a gold ring was considered flashy or any kind of jewelry at all. Uh, they also wanted to enforce stricter church discipline. You can imagine so. Uh, and they also wanted to provide for a ministry trained in the Bible. Okay, stop a minute. <laughs> Think about that. They were petitioning the king. Okay? And in this petition, they say, hey, we want the right to have ministers trained in the Bible. What? Okay, so that's clearly telling us that some of these people were ministers who didn't even know the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it's obvious to me we have some of that going on today, but wow. Okay, 
How'd you like to sit in a church under a minister who didn't know the Bible? And you think, well, yeah, that would be tough. Well, let me clear something up for you. It's happening all across America. Yes, sir. They do not know the Bible. They might know what they think is a Bible, but they don't know the Bible. So it's happening a lot more than what you think. All right. Also in a petition, uh, they wanted to provide for a biblical church polity, uh, basically a, a, a governing thing. Okay. A group to pass laws or agree on things as it were. Uh, they wanted the authority of each church to independently run itself without outside influence. That was a stab directly at the government. They did not want government influence. The Church of England was a government-sanctioned church religion. That's exactly what it was. Uh, they also wanted to allow corrections to corrupt quotations from corrupt translations in the English Book of Common Prayer. All right. Now, while many of the points were not accepted, the petition did, however, lead James to hold a conference about the issues dividing the Puritans and the Episcopalians. All right, so now in 1604, <clears throat> and, and you can see James was pretty quick to get about it. This is the very next year, 1604. Uh, we have what is called the Hampton Court Conference. The Hampton Court Conference. Now, the Hampton uh, Court Conference took place on January 14th through the 18th of this year, 1604. Uh, the members attending, and you think, well, why do you want to run down the... Listen, this is an idea of just the the biblical knowledge that was present here, okay? Um, just listen. All right, there were four Puritans chosen by the king. The first was Dr. John Reynolds, R-A-I-N-O-L-D-S, Reynolds, okay? He was the president of Corpus Christi College. Uh, he was responsible for suggesting an entirely new translation, he was also one of the translators who worked on the prophet section of the authorized text. Reynolds was selected as the foreman of this group, the Puritan group, of whom it is said, and I quote, He alone was a well-furnished library, full of all faculties, of all studies, of all learning. The memory, the reading of that man, were near to a miracle, unquote. That's a smart man for somebody else to say that about him. All right. The second Puritan, Lawrence Chatterton, C-H-A-D-E-R-T-O-N, Chatterton. He was the master, uh, or the head, I guess you'd say, a principal, of Emmanuel College in Cambridge. He was a noted Latin, Hebrew, and Greek scholar. It does not say he was just a scholar. It said he was a noted scholar. That means he knew what he was talking about. He preached to large crowds at Cambridge for nearly 50 years. He wasn't scared to speak in public. <laughs> uh, and he also served as a translator. Uh, the third Puritan, Dr. Thomas Spark. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. It's got an E on the end. Dr. Thomas Spark. Uh, he held four degrees from Magdalen College in Oxford. Uh, he had represented the Puritans at an earlier conference at Lambeth Palace in 1584. So four degrees. That's what he's hanging on his coat rack. Number four, John Newstubbs. That's K-N-E-W-S-T-U-B-S. -E John Newstubbs. 
He was educated at St. John's College. He was an ardent controversialist. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it was just because he was a controversy or conversationalist. I think I spelled that right when I took the note. An ardent controversialist. Versialist. All right. During a conference, he took special exception to the use of the sign of the cross in baptism and the wearing of the surplice, equating it with garments worn by the priests of Isis, for which he was rebuked by the king. Okay. I guess that kind of explains it. He was a <laughs> he was a controversialist. Okay. Yeah. Get on by the king. That's saying something. But th th listen to what I, th his argument was. Uh, he was against the use of the sign in the cross in baptism, the wearing of the surplice, which was those fancy garments. Okay. Equating it with the garments worn by the priests of Isis. Okay. If you don't know anything about the history of Babylon and this black, uh, not black, but dark magic, uh, and, and you get into that study and you find out just how very, 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 very close what they did back then is what the Roman Catholic Church are doing today, it might scare you. I'll tell you. Again, study it for yourself. All right, so that's the four Puritans. Now, he also... Uh, the king selected nine bishops, or Episcopalian. When well, you think, wait a minute, he just doubled them up plus one. Hey, he's a king. Do what he wants to. All right. Uh, nine bishops. The first one being John Whitgift. That's W-H-I-T-G-I-F-T. Whitgift. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury and served as a foreman for this group. Um, there was also the fellow by the name of Richard Bancroft. B-A-N-C-R-O-F-T. Uh, he was the Archbishop of London and worked as a translator also on the authorized version. Uh, another fellow, Thomas Bilson, B-I-L-S-O-N, was the Bishop of Winchester, worked as a final editor on the authorized version. He was credited with writing the epistle dedic dedicatory, okay, <laughs> Epistle dedicatory or dedication to King James in the front of the Bible. All right. Yeah, if you get a copy of that 1611, man, there's some good reading even in the introduction of it, in the front of it. That's awesome. You got to read that. It's great. Maybe if I have time, I'll read it for you since you may not have one. But anyway, uh, Thomas Dove, Bishop of Peterborough. Anthony Watson was the Bishop of Chichester. Uh, Gervais Babington, B-A-B-I-N-G-T-O-N, the Bishop of Worcester. If you're from Massachusetts, that's Worcester. I've got family that lives up there, but it's spelled and pronounced Worcester, unless you're from Massachusetts. God bless you. Uh, Henry Robinson, Bishop of Carlisle. Anthony Rudd, Bishop of St. David's. And Toby Matthew. Isn't that strange? All the way back then, in the 1600s, they had people named Toby. Okay, Toby Matthew, Bishop of Durham. Uh, the nine deans who accompanied the bishops. So not, not only you got nine uh, Episcopalian preachers against the four Puritan preachers, but he's also got nine assistants. So there's like 18 to four now. What? All right. <clears throat> so the deans. Uh, William Barlow was the dean of Chester. He wrote the official account of the Hampton Court Conference, so he's recording what happens here. Also worked as a translator on the authorized version. Lancelot Andrews, A-N-D-R-E-W, 
E-S. Uh, the Dean of Westminster worked as a translator on the authorized version. John Overall, Dean of St. Paul's, also worked as a translator authorized version. James Montague was Dean of Chapel Royal, worked as a translator authorized version. George Abbott, Dean of Winchester, worked as a translator. Uh, Thomas Ravis, R-A-V-I-S, was Dean of Christ Church, worked as a translator. You get a, the, the, This is a smart group, okay? And all of these were translators. Uh, Thomas Eads, that's E-D-E-S, E-D-E-S, was Dean of Worcester, uh, chosen to be a translator, but died before he, begin, he could begin the work. All right. Giles Thompson, T-O-T-H-O-M-S-O-N. There's no P in there. Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N was the Dean of Windsor, also a translator. Uh, John Gordon, uh, the Dean of Salisbury. And uh, the King also selected three other various participants, the first being Dr. Richard Field, just like it says, F-I-E-L-D, like it sounds. Uh, he was an Oxford graduate, and he was the English chaplain to the King. So that's why he's there. Also, uh, Dr. John King, who was the Archdeacon of Nottingham, and a man by the name of Patrick Galloway, who was the Scottish chaplain to the king, uh, paying homage to the hometown, Scotland. Okay, the meeting membership was heavily stacked against the Puritan representation. Of course, we just counted them. <laughs> 18, 19, 20, it was 21 to 4. All right. James announces that the purpose for the conference was to settle things, and I quote, pretended to be amiss, unquote, in the church. Okay, so obviously he's not really flattered, let's say, with some of the things that they've been saying or wanted to change, but we're going to see, you know, what they get to. All right, so James still wanted to hear all sides before deciding on what to do. Smart man, okay? And let me just throw it out there for my two cents. Anytime you have to make a decision, you know, get all the sides before you make a decision. You know, think about it. Don't just blurt out a response. <laughs> think about it. <clears throat> it is well known that James had a passion for debate and was educated enough to argue his own ideas and philosophical points. So he was not afraid of taking on any of these fellows. Okay? So, uh, schedule of events. Uh, day number one, on a Saturday, January 14th, 1604. Uh, the participants assembled at 9 a.m., and I'm pretty sure, with the king involved, there were no late people. <laughs> so they assembled at 9 a.m. Uh, the Episcopalian uh, bishops arrived in their full regalia. And you know what that means. I mean, they brought out, they dressed to the nines. They had all their, their hats, their fancy robes, and all of this kind of stuff on. And it was intended to intimidate the other members. Yes, it was. Now, one bishop commented that Thomas Spark, a Puritan representative, had dressed in such that turkey merchants wear. <laughs> All right, so he's making fun of it. And James dismisses uh, the Puritan members and concentrates on the Episcopalian members. So he's, he's wanting to hear one side and then the other side, okay? So that's what he's doing. All right, and he opens with an hour-long speech stating that as king, he was the head of the church. Okay, so he's telling them where... He's standing and what they're doing there. He's not going to let them run ransack with their own ideas of what to do. But he thanked the skilled men for attending 
and expressed a desire to not change anything unless it needed changing. He said, and I quote, Our purpose is, like a good physician, to examine and try the complaints and fully to remove the occasions thereof. If scandalous, cure them if dangerous. Unquote. All right. Now, the bishops took the statement to mean that nothing was going to change and began to flatter the king by addressing him from their knees. And, of course, you know, this is their Bible, and they're thinking, hey, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's our translation. Of course, they're talking about the uh, bishop's Bible, <laughs> which we already know. All right, it had to be reworked in one year. Something's wrong. Okay. Uh, all right, but continuing his simile of the church as a diseased body, James went on to say, quote, it was no reason that because a man had been sick of the pox forty years, therefore, he should not be cured at length, unquote. Now, obviously he's speaking in Middle English, so let me explain. All right, the meaning here is that being sick for 40 years, and what he was meaning by that was he was basically referring to Elizabeth's reign, okay, was no excuse to not cure the problem. He said just because it's been this way for 40 years doesn't mean it's going, not going to change now. And you know what that's referring to? The chain, change is inevitable, okay, in many things. But now we have a Bible that does not need change. It, it is solid. You know why? Because man had no part in it. God was right from the beginning. But most things we have, we have to, you know, change them and all that kind of thing. But what, what James is getting to here is tradition. And, and that was the downfall of the Jew in the New Testament. They wanted to stick to the tradition no matter what the faith. No matter what the belief, no matter what Jesus said, they had their traditions, and by God, they're going to stick with it. That's what they were saying, okay? <clears throat> so, uh, the epic, uh, when he made that statement, uh, these Episcopalians uh, quickly realized that things were not going to be uh, handed to them in their laps. All right, now, the issues they covered on the first day. The first one was going to be baptism. Baptism. Now, Richard Bancroft was in favor of lay baptism. In the case of necessity. All right, now what does that mean? Lay baptism basically means that someone other than the pastor or preacher could baptize someone. And, and what this is referring to, again, we're getting to where uh, those two train tracks are very parallel the Roman Catholic belief and the uh, Episcopalian belief. Roman Catholic Church believes you must be baptized to be saved. The Bible doesn't say that does say you should be baptized, but you don't have to. If you had to be baptized to go to heaven, why did Christ say on the cross to the thief that was standing there with him, today thou shalt be with me in paradise? What did he do? Tell the Roman soldiers, oh, wait a minute, fellas, let's go baptize this guy, then you can hang us back up here and we can continue on with what you got going on. Right? Didn't happen. So how did he end up in paradise? Yeah. Baptism is an outward um, statement. Okay, if you will, of what has happened on the inside. Okay, but it's got to take place on the inside. If nothing happens on the inside, changing the outside don't fix anything. It's like putting perfume uh, and makeup on a pig. Uh, you can give a pig a bath, put lipstick on that thing, put a dress on it, clean it up, put a bow on it. As soon as you turn it loose, where's it going to go? Right back to the mud hole. Why? It's in its nature. It's in its nature. All right. So, uh, this baptism, Richard Bancroft, was in favor of this lay baptism. 
Uh, Gervais Babington was against this, taking a more Puritanistic view. Thomas Dove, trying to get in on the conversation, suggested, <laughs> uh, I tell you, when, when there's a th a th an authority like a king present, listen, some of these people just do ridiculous things. Thomas Dove falls in this case. Listen to what he says. Uh, trying to get on a conversation, he suggested that sand could be used where water was not present. Really? Come on, man. All right. At this point, Dean James Montague leaned over and spoke a soft word to King James. Well, Bancroft, upon seeing that, lost his cool and yelled out, Speak out, Mr. Doctor, and do not cross us underhand. He thought the guy was saying something <laughs> derogatory against him or mean against him. And James realizes at this point that the atmosphere of backstabbing and one-upmanship was just way too much and dismissed the meeting altogether after just three hours. He's like, I'm not going to put up with this. All right. So, into that. Uh, day number two, uh, on Monday, January 16th, uh, King James summons the Puritan group. He keeps Richard Bancroft and Thomas Bilson in the meeting as well. Now, King James allows them to speak merely for entertainment and amusement. I think he'd already made his mind up by this point. But he tells them to give proof of practices they object to being condemned in the scriptures. James allows them to make points only so he can refute them. So as they're giving these excuses, James rebutting them uh, with what he knows of the Bible. All right. Now, during the meeting, Bancroft keeps referring to the Puritans as plaintiffs and interrupts them to the point that the king scolds him for acting rudely. And obviously, if you're one of these Puritans, what you're seeing here is, okay, this is just a waste of our time. King's already made up his mind. Yeah, even though he gets on one of his, you know, main men, this, this is not going anywhere. So they're disheartened. They thought that King James would be more sympathetic to their cause due to the fact that he was so close to John Knox and had been in power during the growth of the Presbyterian movement in Scotland. I, I could understand that. All right. <clears throat> now, with the issues going on that day, Dr. Reynolds began the day with four requests. Number one, that the doctrine of the church might be preserved in purity according to God's word. Number two, that good pastors might be planted in all churches to preach the same thing. Number three, that the church government might be sincerely ministered according to God's word. And number four, that the book of common prayer might be fitted to more increase piety. In other words, make it fit the situation. I mean, you know, you're in a house of God. Let's keep it holy, right? Uh, at this point, King James asked Reynolds how the clergy would settle theological disputes. <laughs> in response, Reynolds suggested the use of an Episcopal Synod, Synod, S-Y-N-O-D, where the bishop with his presbytery, meaning committee, uh, could make a determination. Well, that was really not what he should have said. But anyway, King James flew into a rage over this statement. Why? because the, uh, the Presbyterian movement in Scotland had actually restricted his power as a monarch. Uh, James didn't like that. So James shouted out, quote, If you aim at a Scottish Presbytery, it agreeth as well with monarchy as God and the devil. Then Jack and Tom and Will and Dick shall meet and censure me and my council in all our proceedings. And then he shouted, No bishops, no king. And he concluded this issue with the words, quote, if this be all your party hath to say, 
I will make them conform themselves, or else I will harry them out of the land, or else do worse. Unquote. All right, so he didn't take that one very well. Mm. Uh, uh, only one translation of the Bible. Now, Dr. Reynolds makes a bold statement that draws the king's attention. And he says here, Dr. Reynolds, quote, We desire that a translation be made of the whole Bible that is consonant as can be to the original Greek and Hebrew text, and this is to be set out and printed with no marginal notes and only to be used in all churches of England in time of divine service. Now that ended the second day. So he gave the king something to think about. Uh, day three on a Wednesday, January the 18th, uh, King James meets with bishops and deans once more. He then calls in the Puritan group to hear his decision. He begins with small changes in the Book of Common Prayer. The Puritans would have seen this as a disappointment if there was nothing else, obviously. Uh, but then King James then turns the subject over to a new translation of the Bible. And he says, and I quote, his Highness wished that some especial pains should be taken in this behalf for one uniform translation, and this to be done by the best learned of both the universities, after them to be reviewed by the bishops and the chief learned of the church, from them to be presented to the Privy Council, and lastly to be ratified by his royal authority to be read in the whole church and no other. And then he also added, quote, that no marginal notes should be added, having found in them, which are annexed to the Geneva translation, some notes very partial, untrue, seditious, and savoring too much of dangerous and traitorous conceits, unquote. Now, this decision was smart on the part of James, because it would look to the general public like James had conceded many points to the Puritans, which was popular. Also, that the translation would take several years, giving King James a rest from the bickering between the different elements. Now, by criticizing the Geneva Bible, by meaning no marginal notes, you know, being partial and true and all that, uh, James would stay in good standing with the bishops. News of the new translation also would still thunder from the coming Roman Catholic translation, that Douay Reigns version that they're working on for 27 years over there. Uh, it also established a system of checking and, if need be, censoring the version at each step of the way. All right. So <clears throat> this was the uh, 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 longer episode I'd had. I'd try to keep them to about 30 minutes if I can. I hope you were able to stay with me and not break it up. If so, I hope it didn't lo lose the train of thought there uh, too much. But, <clears throat> again, uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. I certainly hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. Uh, if you're trying to keep up with where we're at and what's going on, the next thing we're going to talk about is the gunpowder plot of 1605. The gunpowder plot. That's going to be a great story. But it also uh, has some elements in it that we still talk about today or celebrate today, if you want to use that term or whatever. But anyway, all right. So uh, thank you for listening uh, once again, may God bless you, and I hope you'll be here next time. All right. Thank you, and have a great day.